Section 1 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 1 by H. M. Guatkin. Chapter 1. Constantine and His City. The first question that has to be considered in laying down the plan of a medieval history is where to begin. Where shall we draw the line that separates it from ancient history? Some would fix it at the death of Domitian, others at that of Marcus. Some would come down to Constantine, to the death of Theodosius, to the great barbarian invasion of 406, or to the end of the Western Empire in 476 and others again would go on to gregory the first or even as late as charlemagne there is even something to be said for beginning with augustus or at the destruction of jerusalem though perhaps these epochs are not seriously proposed however they all have their advantages if for example we consider only the literary merit of the historians we must draw the line after tacitus and if we fix our eyes on the feud of roman and barbarian we cannot stop till the coronation of charlemagne curiously enough the epoch usually laid down at the end of the western empire is four seventy six the epoch usually laid down at the end of the western empire in four seventy six is precisely the one for which there is least to be said we should do better than this by dividing in the middle of the gothic war five thirty five through five 53. We have in quick succession the closing of the schools of Athens, the Code of Justinian, and the Great Siege of Rome, and the abolition of the Consulship. The Rome which Belisarius delivered was still the Rome of the Caesars, while the Rome which Narsus entered sixteen years later is already the Rome of the Popes. It is the same in Gaul. The remains of the old civilization still found under the sons of Clovis are mostly obliterated in the next generation, Procopius witnessed as great a revolution as did Polybius. But even this would not be satisfactory. We cannot cut in two the Gothic War and the reign of Justinian. In any case, we can draw no sharp division after Constantine, without ignoring the greatest power of the world, that Eastern Roman Empire which carried down the old Greco-Roman civilization almost to the end of the Middle Ages in truth the precise beginning of medieval history is is as indefinite as the precise beginning of the fog there is no point between augustus and charlemagne where we can say the old is finished the new not yet begun choose where we will medieval elements are traceable before it ancient elements after it thus theodoric's government of italy is on the old lines while the frankish invasion of gaul belongs to the new order if in the present work we begin with constantine we do not mean that there is any break in history at this point though we see important changes in the adoption of christianity and the fixing of the government in the form it retained for centuries the chief advantage of choosing this epoch is that as the medieval elements were not strong before the fourth century we shall be able to trace nearly the whole of their growth without encroaching too much on ancient history at the same time we shall hold ourselves free to trace them back as far as may be needful and point out the ancient elements as late as they may appear 
we begin with an outline of constantine's life its significance we can discuss later flavius valerius constantinus was born at nasus in dacia about the year 274 his father constantius was already a man of some mark though still in the lower stages of the career which brought him to the purple on his father's side constantius belonged to the great families of dardania the hilly province north of macedonia while his mother was a niece of the emperor claudius gothicus but constantine's own mother helena was a woman of low rank from drepanum in bithynia though there is no reason to doubt that she held the legal and quite moral position of concubina or morganatic wife to constantius of constantine's early years we know only that he had no learned education and we may presume from his hesitating greek that he was brought up in latin lands perhaps partly in dalmatia where his father was at one time governor in two ninety three constantius was made caesar and practically master of gaul with the task assigned him of recovering britain from carusius but as a condition of his elevation he was required to divorce helena and marry theodora a stepdaughter of maximian constantine was taken to the court of diocletian partly as a hostage for his father and partly with a view to a future place for him in the college of emperors so he went with diocletian to egypt in two ninety six and made acquaintance on the way with eusebius the future bishop and bishop of caesarea next year he seems to have seen service with galerius against the persians about this time he must have taken menervina most likely as a concubina for her son crispus was already a young man in three seventeen early in three o three the great persecution was begun with the demolition of the church at nicomedia and there was a tall young officer looking on with thoughts of his own like napoleon watching the riot of june seventeen ninety two when diocletian and maximian abdicated one may three o five it was generally believed that constantine would be one of the new caesars there was reason for this belief he had been betrothed to fausta the daughter of maximian as far back as two ninety three when she was a mere child and daughters of emperors were not common enough to be thrown away on outsiders moreover money had recently been coined at alexandria with the inscription constantinus caesar but at the last moment diocletian passed him over perhaps he was over persuaded by galerius more likely he was reserving him to secede his father in gaul after this however the court of galerius was no place for constantine presently he managed to escape and join his father at boulogne after a short campaign in caledonia constantius died at york twenty five july three o six and the army hailed constantine augustus he was a good officer the sons of theodora were only boys and the army of britain always the most mutinous in the empire had no mind to wait for a new caesar from the east its chief mover was crocus the almanic king and this would seem to be the first case of a barbarian king as a roman general and also the first case of barbarian action in the election of an emperor willingly or unwillingly galerius recognized constantine though only as caesar it mattered little he had the power and the title came a couple of years later 
thus constantine succeeded his father in gaul and britain we hear little of his administration during the next six years 306 through 312 but we get a general impression that he was a good ruler and careful of his people such fighting as he had to do was of the usual sort against the franks mostly inside the rhine and against the almani and the and the Bructeri beyond it the war however was merciless for even heathen feeling was shocked when he gave barbarian kings to the beasts along with their followers by thousands at a time but gaul had never recovered from the great invasions 254 through 285 and his remissions of taxation gave no permanent relief to the public misery in religion he was of course heathen but he grew more and more monotheistic and the christians always counted him friendly like a father the last act of galerius april 311 was an edict of toleration for the christians it was not encumbered with any hard conditions but it was given on the heathen principle that every god is entitled to the worship of his own people whereas the persecution hindered the christians from rendering that worship footnote one of the toleration laws alluded to by licinius was so encumbered but this appears to have been the rescript of maximum daza a little later End of footnote. a few days after this galerius died there were now four emperors constantine held gaul and britain maxentius italy spain and africa while licinius more properly licinian ruled illyricum greece and thrace and maximum daza or daya held everything beyond the bosphorus their political alliances were partly determined by their geographical position constantine reaching over maxentius to licinius while maximin reached over licinius to maxentius partly also by their relation to the christians for this was now the immediate question of practical politics constantine was friendly to them and licinius had never been an active persecutor whereas maximin was a cruel and malicious enemy and maxentius standing as he did for rome could not but be hostile to them so maxentius was to crush constantine and maximin to deal with licinius constantine did not wait to be crushed breaking up his camp at colmar he pushed rapidly across the alps in a cavalry fight near turin the gauls overcame the formidable cataphracti horse and rider clad in mail of maxentius then straight to verona where in ruitius pompeianus he found a foeman worthy of his steel right well did pompeianus defend verona and if he escaped from the siege it was only to gather an army for its relief then another great battle pompeianus was killed verona surrendered and constantine made straight for rome still maxentius gave no sign he had baffled invasion twice before by sitting still in rome and constantine could not have besieged the city with far inferior forces at the last moment maxentius came out a few miles and offered battle twenty eight october three twelve at saxa rubra a skilful flank march of constantine forced him to fight with the tiber behind him and the mulvian bridge for his retreat his numidians fled before the gaulish cavalry the praetorian guard fell fighting where it stood and the rest of the army was driven headlong into the river maxentius perished in the waters and constantine was master of the west 
this short campaign the most brilliant feat of arms since aurelian's time was an epic for constantine himself to it belongs the story of the shining cross somewhere between colmar and saxarubra he saw in the sky one afternoon a bright cross with the words hoc vince and the army saw it too and in a dream that night christ bade him take it for his standard so constantine himself told eusebius and so eusebius recorded it in three thirty eight and there is no reason to suspect either the one or the other of deceit the evidence of the army is in any case not worth much but that of lactantius in three fourteen and of the heathen nasarius in three twenty one puts it beyond reasonable doubt that something of the sort did happen footnote lactantius is not discredited by the similar vision he gives to licinius why should not licinius take a hint from constantine and have a vision of his own End of footnote. but we need not therefore set it down for a miracle the cross observed may very well have been a halo such as Wimper saw when he came down after the accident on the matterhorn in eighteen sixty five three crosses for his three lost companions the rest is no more than can be accounted for by constantine's imagination inflamed as it must have been by the intense anxiety of the unequal contest yet after all the cross was not an exclusively christian symbol the action was ambiguous like most of constantine's actions at this period of his life he was quite clear about monotheism but he was not equally clear about the difference between christ and the unconquered sun the gauls had fought of old beneath the sun-god's cross of light so while the christians saw in the labarum the cross of christ the heathens in the army would only be receiving an old standard back again such was the origin of the byzantine labarum one enduring monument of the victory is the triumphal arch still standing at rome dedicated to him by the senate and people in three fifteen its inscription recites how instinctu divinitatis he inflicted just punishment on the tyrant and all his party the expression has been set down as a later correction of some heathen form as nutu iovus o m but it is certainly original and must express constantine's declared belief for we may trust the senate and the other panegyrists for knowing what was likely to please him constantine remained two months in rome leaving in the first days of three thirteen for milan where he gave his sister constantia in marriage to licinius and conferred with him on policy generally and on the hostile attitude of maximin in particular that ruler had not published the edict of galerius but merely sent a circular to the officials that actual persecution was to be stopped for the present a few months later about november three eleven he resumed it with less bloodshed and more statesmanship it was far more skilfully planned than any that had gone before maximin's endeavor was to stir up the municipalities against the christians to organize a rival church of heathenism and to give a definitely anti-christian bias to education even the fall of maxentius had drawn from him only a rescript so full of inconsistencies that neither heathens nor christians could make head or tail of it except that maximin was a prodigious liar he even denied that there had been any persecution during his reign at all events this was not the complete change of policy needed to save him 
Constantine and Licinius saw their advantage and issued from Milan a new edict of toleration. Its text is lost, but it went far beyond the edict of Galerius. For the first time in history, the principle of universal toleration was officially laid down, that every man has a right to choose his religion and to practice it in his own way without any discouragement from the state. No doubt it was laid down as a political move, for neither Constantine nor Licinius kept to it. Constantine tried to crush Donatus and Arians, and Licinius fell back even from toleration of Christians. Still the old heathen principle that no man may worship gods who are not on the official list was rejected for the present, and toleration became the general law of the empire till the time of Theodosius. The wedding festivities were rudely interrupted by the news that Maximin had made a sudden attack without waiting for the end of the winter, and met with brilliant success, capturing Byzantium and pushing on towards Hadrianopoli. There, however, Licinius met him with a very inferior force and completely routed him, 30 April 313. Maximin fled to Nicomedia and soon found that it would be as much as he could do to hold the line of Mount Taurus. Now he had no choice. The Christians were strong in Egypt and Syria and must be conciliated at any cost. So he issued a new edict explaining that the officials had committed many oppressions very painful to a benevolent ruler like himself. And now to make further mistakes impossible, he lets all men know that everyone is free to practice whatever religion he pleases. Maximin gives the same liberty as Constantine and Licinius. He could not safely offer less, but he states no principle of toleration. However, it was too late now. Maximin died in the summer, and Licinius issued a rescript carrying out the decisions of Milan and restoring confiscated property to the corporation of the Christians. It was published at Nicomedia, 13 June, 313. Constantine sent out similar letters in the West. The defeat of Maximin ends the long contest of church and state begun by Nero. Former persecutions had died out of themselves, and even Gallienus had only restored the confiscated property. But now the Christians had gained full legal recognition of which they were never again deprived. Licinius and Julian might devise annoyances and connive at outrages and work the administration in a hostile spirit but they never ventured to revoke the edict of Milan. Heathenism was still strong in its associations with Greek philosophy and culture, with Roman law and social order, and its moral character stood higher than it had done. It hardly looked like a beaten enemy, yet such it was. Its last real hope was gone. Religious peace was assured, but the unity of the empire was not yet restored. Constantine and Licinius were both ambitious, and war between them was only a question of time. They were not unequally matched. If Constantine had the victorious legions of Gaul, Licinius ruled the east from the frontier of Armenia to that of Italy, so that he was master of the Illyrian provinces, which furnished the best soldiers of the Roman army. Every emperor from Claudius to Licinius himself was an Illyrian, except Tacitus and Carus. And if Constantine had done a splendid feat of arms, Licinius was a fine soldier too, and with all his personal vices, not less careful of his subjects. 
Constantine was called away from Milan by some incursions of the Franks, who kept him busy during the summer of 313. When things were more settled, he proposed to institute a middle domain for his other brother-in-law, Bassianus. The plan seems to have been that, while Constantine gave him Italy, Licinius should give him Illyricum. Licinius frustrated it by engaging Bassianus in a plot for which he was put to death, and then refused to give up to Constantine his agent Senesio, the brother of Bassianus. This meant war. Constantine took the offensive as he had done before, pushing into Pannonia with no more than 20,000 men, and attacking Licinius at Zebali, where he was endeavoring to cover Sirmium. He had 35,000 against him, but a hard-fought battle, 8 October 314, ended in a complete victory and the capture of Sirmium. Licinius fled towards Adrianopoli, deepening the quarrel on the way by giving the rank of Caesar to his Illyrian general Valens. A new army was collected, but another great battle on the Martian plain was indecisive. Constantine won the victory, but Licinius and Valens were able to take up a threatening position in his rear at Beroea. So peace had to be made. First Valens was sacrificed. Then Licinius gave up Illyricum from the Danube to the extremity of Greece, retaining in Europe only Thrace, which, however, in those days reached north to the Danube. So things settled down. Constantine returned to Rome in the summer to celebrate his Decennalia, 25 July 315, and in 317 the succession was secured by the nominations of Caesars, Crispus, and Constantine, the sons of Constantine, and, and Licinianus, the son of Licinius. Crispus was grown up, but Constantine was a baby. This treaty might be hollowed, but it kept the peace for nearly eight years. End of section 1